Ah, there we go. Thank you very much. That's my secretary. Okay, I usually give you a little backstory of here's where we are and where we've been. So this is the Gospel of John, of course. We're at the end of chapter four. We're still uh, fairly early in the ministry of Christ, uh, the first third, maybe. Um, and we've seen Jesus meet Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a religious leader. We've seen Jesus meet the woman at the well, a Samaritan. And um, with Nicodemus, he was very loving to him. And we learned that he um, loves those even that were uh, of the Pharisees. We learned that he loves outsiders with the woman of Samaria. Remember that last week? Tonight, we're going to learn that God loves the broken as well. This is a really unusual story. I don't think there's any story like it in the Bible. Now, when you hear the story, you're going to think, no, there's a lot of stories like this, but there's something unique about this story that has a surprise, not good ending. Um, the other thing we're going to notice, uh, we'll talk a little bit about healing. We're also going to learn a little more about who Jesus is. We've been saying that's the, that's the theme of this whole book. Who is Jesus Christ? So chapter four, we're going to pick it up in verse 46. Those of you that are on Zoom and those of you that are here, so I know you're awake, say amen. amen. Okay, good. And how about you guys on Zoom wave or say amen? Great. Um, John chapter four, verse 46. Once more, he, that's Jesus, visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. There was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. That's about 15, 16 miles away, walking. It would take quite a while to get there. A royal official, we talked about this story last week, but we're going to wrap it up this week. This is a guy who works for Herod, who's not a good guy. And this is a royal official, very powerful, probably wealthy guy. He's got a son that's very, very sick. So verse 47, when this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death, out of options. This is a crisis situation. Verse 48, Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe or you simply won't believe. Where he is, is north of Jerusalem in Galilee, his home territory, where they receive him. We learned earlier in this passage, but they love to see the David Copperfield, the show, the signs. And they're forgetting that signs, which are miracles, signs and wonders, are all signs, meaning they point to something, right? Some aspect of his character, his power, his identity. So they just want to see the miracles for the miracle's sake. So it sounds a little cold when Jesus uh, responds to this man whose son is sick and says, unless you people, it is you plural, so people is inserted there, but it is you all. Uh, unless you see signs and wonders, you simply won't believe. The royal official, verse 49, just ignores that and says, sir, come down before my child dies. Crisis faith. So he's expecting Jesus to come with him and walk the 16 miles to Capernaum, say some mumbo jumbo, maybe lay his hands on the child. This is the first in the Gospel of John, long distance healing. Verse 50. Go, Jesus replied, your son 
will live. Now, the most amazing thing about verse 50 is the second half. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. That's it. Go, your son will live. No, are you going to pray or wave your hand or do anything? He's Jesus. God created the world, speaking it into existence. Later in chapter five, we're going to see Jesus's word is more powerful than we ever dreamed it was. But for now, he simply says, go, your son will live. No request for, can I have some proof? It's a real test of this man's faith. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. We've said last week that there's a common saying in America, which is if somebody doesn't believe you, you say, no, you have my word. I'll be there Thursday. Or you have my word. I'm going to give you the rest of the money or whatever. We have in our hands, in our, the Bible, God's word right? Which means every promise in there is 100% trustworthy. Because God, contrary to popular belief, there are some things God can't do. Did you know that? Well, he's all powerful. No, I know. I know he is. But he can't lie. Can't sin. Can't break a promise. Can't do it against his character. So we have God's word on it. The word that is so important in that verse 50. He took Jesus at his word and departed. When you and I have a crisis, do we go to the word of God, read the promises and take him at his word and depart? Or do we spend a little time there and pray and then worry some more? Worry is the opposite of faith, we've said in this Bible study. Verse 51, while he was still on his way, on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. 52. This is where we left off. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him yesterday at the seventh hour, which Roman time starts at 6 a.m., seven hours later, one in the afternoon, NIV has, the fever left him. You get the feeling from this that it wasn't from 104, it went to 103.8, and then they checked it again. It just left him, right? An instantaneous healing, simultaneous with when Jesus spoke the words, go, your son will live. Over there, had they had cell phones, he would have got the call. You won't believe what just happened, right? What's interesting is, um, well, let's keep reading and then we'll come back to this. Then the father, verse 53, realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming to Judah, from Judah, sorry, to Galilee. Judah's where uh, Jerusalem is, Galilee, more the hick country where Nazareth uh, is to the north. Um, from the text and knowing how far it is away, if it was one in the afternoon, um, it would have taken time for the men to reach where this man was and time for the man to have walked a certain amount. Scholars say in the commentaries that, and you can't tell it from the text, but he probably, the man, ran to find Jesus, right? It's a crisis. And that's okay. But what's astounding is he took Jesus at his word to the point that based on the time situation, he walked home. He didn't run home, meaning he just had faith. He, every step was, it's going to be all right. He's going to be okay. Jesus said so. 
taking him at his word, the word of God, we call the Bible. We always say this, but it's true. It's the best-selling book in the history of the world. It's the best-selling book in the, in the United States of America every single year. Why isn't it on the New York Times bestseller list then, Joe, or the Amazon bestseller list? They consider it a separate category and they don't count it. And I'll prove it to you. How many people here own at least two Bibles? See, I, don't, I own more than two, and so do you probably. I don't own any other book more than two. Right. Even if I wrote a book, I'd probably only have one uh, copy. This is a, uh, a long distance miracle. Right. Does the distance matter? Could he have done it in Tokyo? Absolutely. Right. But it's also a double miracle. Because who what happens? Well, the little the child gets healed. Yes. And the man's heart. Gets healed and he of his sin and he believes does he have the full orb perspective of who and what Jesus is and that he's going to die on the cross and rise from the dead? No, but he believes. And I believe once the Holy Spirit got a hold of this guy, when Jesus rose from the dead, he heard about it and believed even more. And it became even clearer to him. So it's a double miracle. It is long distance miracle. But there's, you know, we talk in terms of distance, but there's another long distance sense to this miracle. And that is not space but time, because it's been 2,000 years, and you and I still pray in the name of this carpenter from Nazareth, don't we? Does that matter how far or how much time? No. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. The, um, the child is healed and has no idea what happened, but I want you to notice that the man goes from um, crisis faith, right? Please come and heal my son, to confident faith, takes him at his word and leaves. To confirmed faith, he's told, you won't believe it, at one o'clock yesterday, right? Two, this is the best one, contagious faith. Look at verse 53 again. The father realized it was at the exact time which Jesus said to him, your son will live. So he forgot all about it. No, he believed and his whole household believed contagious faith in the face of a sign that's using sign faith the right way because the sign points to not the sign in and of itself a healing a miracle but the sign points to something more important who and what jesus christ is and the power that he has in his word tremendous faith um and then verse 54 says, this was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea in Galilee. If you've been keeping count, that's not really correct because there have been other miracles. But John is just counting the Cana, Gal the Cana wedding, remember turning water into wine as miracle number one, and this one as miracle number two. Um, but there were certainly others uh, along the way. Um, do we want to say anything else? Uh, let's see. Chapter five, we're going to jump into now, but chapter four, as we leave, we talked about the Samaritan woman last time, just an amazing story. Um, and now this man, now chapter five is this healing. That's a very unusual story. I told you with a weird ending, but also we're going to see in the gospel of John it happens earlier in some of the other gospels in the gospel of John. This is the first real, um, vocal antagonism and hatred you see 
of Jesus by the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and what have you. Um, Jesus loves the outsider, as we said, the woman at the well. He also loves the broken. Let's dive in. Chapter 5, verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals or feasts. Same word. Just says one of them. Uh, we don't know which one it is. There's three. It could be. They all start with P, Passover, Pentecost, or Purim. So we don't know which one this is. John didn't tell us. It's probably not important. It doesn't have any effect on the story. But able-bodied Jewish males, if they could, were expected to go to Jerusalem for um, certain religious festivals. So it's one of those festivals. And Jesus, in order to keep the whole law, does obey the Jewish law and goes to Jerusalem for the festivals, even though, remember, he cleaned out the temple. Remember, he cleared out the temple a couple chapters ago. He's still going because he's going to keep the whole law. Um, and it's sometime later, he doesn't give a time frame. Now, verse two, there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Okay, so what's going on here? Uh, Bethesda, by the way, means house of mercy or house of outpouring. If you know the story, it's kind of apropos, isn't it? Um, let's see. I, you know, the other thing I meant to mention is in the past, in the book of John, we've been noticing, and I've been trying to point out every one of them, I've probably forgotten a few, that John is a book full of double meanings, where, and they keep getting. Uh, misunderstood. In chapter two, he says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And he means his body. John even says that in John two, right around verse 19 or 20. Do you remember that? And the Jews say, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, the building, misunderstanding. Chapter three, he talks to Nicodemus, and he says, you must be born again. Nicodemus, he means spiritually. Again, they miss, he misunderstands and says, can a man enter his mother's womb a second time? Do you remember that? Misunderstanding. Um, chapter four, the woman at the well. Remember? Uh, if you knew who it was that spoke with you, he'd give you living water. What does she say? You don't even have a bucket or a water pot. Come on. Right? Pew, goes right over the heads of these people. Spiritual meaning versus physical meaning. I'm going to show you a place in this story that I think it happens again. I wanted to mention that before we dove in. Okay, so there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate, north side of the wall of Jerusalem was a, a pretty small Sheep Gate, uh, part of the Jerusalem wall. Um, let's see. They have excavated this area and found this pool, which has five porches or uh colonnades in NIV. They found the actual pool where this was. Have any of you seen the series, The Chosen, which is the life of Christ? You can get the Chosen app or watch it on YouTube. Season one, eight episodes, season two, I think there's five or six. They have this ex exact story in one of their episodes. Um, let's see. Verse three. So there's a pool with five porches or covered colonnades. Verse three, here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. So I want you to picture this 
situation, if you will, all kinds of extremely ill people. And he only gives three examples here, people that are blind, lame, paralyzed. I'm sure there were deaf people or a hundred other ailments, right? They're all lying around there. Um, verse four is not in the best and oldest manuscripts. You say, oh, mistake in the Bible. No. Um, verse four basically explains that um, there's a, a moving of the, they waited for the moving of the waters from time to time. An angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. And the first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease he has. My Bible goes from verse three to verse five. How many have that situation? You don't even have verse four. There are manuscripts that have verse four, but the oldest one is 400 BC, about 350 years after this, 310 years after this book is written. So what's going on here? Is that scripture what I just read in the footnote of my Bible? No. Some scribe added it to explain why are all these paralyzed people hanging out at this pool? Oh, so you're saying it's true that the angel of the Lord would move the waters and the first one that got in would get healed? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying this was a superstition or a legend at that time. And there may have been springs underneath that would make the water move around. And these people are so desperate to be healed, keyword, that they'll do anything. They're there waiting. And so the legend was. Whoever the, maybe there's 300 people, 400 people, 20 people, however many, they're all so sick, paralyzed, lame, blind, and they're waiting day after day after day because the healing is the thing. Or is it? And if by chance the waters bubble, move, or the wind blows the water a little, there's a mad chaotic scramble of all these paralyzed and sick people and blind people trying to get into the water. The legend was the first one in gets healed. I don't think it's true. Most scholars don't either. But these people are so hopeless. It's like a lottery ticket. It's better than nothing. You never know. And they're there. Okay. Do you got the picture? Um, of kind of a very sad scene. Um, let's see. So uh, let's see on the notes if I have anything astute to say. Um, not really. No, let's move on. So uh, yeah, we already talked about that. The weird thing about this whole concept is if there's a bunch of sick people, some much sicker than others, let's say this guy's got one paralyzed leg but he can hop on the other leg. This guy's got two paralyzed legs and he's blind. What I'm getting at is, if this was true, it's pretty unfair because the sickest person would never be the first one in, would he? Right? It would be in a way the least sick person, right? Who can see, because if you're blind, you're, you're, you're at a disadvantage. Um, and the person that could be mobile and jump in first. But boy, they must all be jumping in as well. Uh, if there's any kind of movement. The least needy person would probably be the one to get in first. And then imagine the disappointment when he crawls back out and he's not healed. He's wet, but he's in the same condition he was in before. Enter Jesus Christ. Verse 5. 
One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Well, that's a long time. We don't know how old this guy is. If he's 48, he was 10 when whatever happened happened. Maybe he's 38 and from birth, he's had some greatly debilitating disease, some kind of an invalid, a, a paralyzed person, um, 38 years. We're going to see Jesus single this guy out, out of all those people. Um, and we'll talk more about that in a second. But this guy is, he's got a kind of a hopeless situation. Uh, we don't know how long he's been at the pool hoping for a break. But 38 years he's been sick. Jesus is going to make the first move and ask a really weird question. Verse 6. By the way, if you don't have a Bible and you're here, there's some on that back table by the door. Verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that, learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, 38 years, Jesus asked him, do you want to get well? Do you want to be made whole? I think King James has, doesn't it? Anybody have King James? Do you want to be made whole? Do you want to be healed? Okay, like in our culture, we would say, well, duh, right? Why else would he be here? Of course he wants to be healed, but the question is not rhetorical. Listen, it's not just for the sake of asking the question. In my opinion, there's a lot going on here, okay? Number one, if you know anything about um, that culture, there were those people who were invalids who couldn't work, obviously, so they were beggars, and some beggars could make a decent living begging, and kind of didn't want to get well because you're going to ruin my livelihood. I'm making $350 a day begging. I'm making up the number, of course. Um, and that would ruin everything. I haven't worked for 38 years. But probably these people want to get healed. Why are they at the pool? Maybe it's a good place to beg. Okay. Do you want to get well? Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made whole? We're going to come back to that question, and I'm going to postulate for you now, that's the word with the double meaning. Remember? Double meanings, living water. Um, you must be born again. Destroy this temple. Double meanings. Jesus is always thinking much more deeply, spiritually. Everybody's taking him on the surface. We all did just now, didn't we? Do you want to be healed? Oh, you mean make his legs well. Does he? Let's see. So Jesus sees him there. What's interesting is verse six says he learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time. Does that mean somebody told him? See that guy over there, 38 years he'd been sick? I don't think so. I think the Holy Spirit told him. I think God told him. I think he's eternal God and omniscient. And I think he knew. Remember the woman at the well? He knew about her whole marital status and five husbands you've had. You got number six you're shacking up with. Remember all that? Not right. Jesus sees him. He asks the question, do you want to get well? Jesus takes the initiative. Notice the man doesn't say, hey, please heal me. Verse seven, sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Okay, what's going on here? 
Number one, he's telling him the truth, right? But I want you to notice the man is taking it at the physical level. In a way, you can't blame him. We're going to learn in, as we go through this story, the man does not know who Jesus is, doesn't know the name Jesus, doesn't recognize Jesus, probably hasn't been to where he's been preaching or doing miracles. He can't get around, right? He does not know Jesus. I'm going to tell you that I think the man has zero faith. I'll show you one place where he might have just that much, but not much. So the man takes him at, at the physical level. Notice that the man blames his failure on others, and rightfully so in a way. I got nobody to help me. I have no man, King James says. Loneliness is a big problem in our country. Do you know that? More this year, the last year, COVID and everything, than ever, ever before. Um, I heard a study that the average person in America has less than, you know, when you average it all out, it's not quite two close friends that they think if I had an emergency or a problem, I could call so-and-so and so-and-so, and I know they'd help me. I know they'd take my call. I know they'd be there for me. The average person has less than two of those. I think we're including family members as well. That's a sad thing. We used to be more interconnected. As a people, we need to, as Christians, be that connected in our churches, yes, but also outside the churches, our neighbors, our friends, people we work with, whoever, right? We need to be more interconnected. So he says, I have no man. I have nobody to help me. Um, it's a little reminiscent of Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sin. Do you remember that? God says, don't eat the fruit of that tree. The day you eat of it, you'll surely die. Remember all that? Adam's alone before that. There's all these animals, and now God makes him Eve. Remember that? The first woman, and Adam says, wow, awesome, right? Great. Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. Well, they eat the fruit. You remember the story, right? Tempted by the devil, they eat the fruit. And then they hide from each other, fig leaves, and they hide from God. That's what sin does, separates us vertically, God, horizontally, other people. And then God shows up. Do you remember? Where are you? Did you eat the fruit I told you not to eat? I'm paraphrasing. You can look it up later in Genesis 3. What does Adam do? The woman you gave me, right? It's her fault. What does Eve do? She, he passes the buck to Eve. She passes it to the serpent. Hey, the serpent told me, oh, well, that makes it okay. It's kind of ridiculous, right? This guy's in a way passing the buck. I don't have anybody to help me get in the pool when the water's stirred. When I'm trying to get in, someone else gets down ahead of me. It's a veiled attempt to say, would you be the guy, Jesus? You asked me, do you want to get healed? You look able-bodied. You look like a carpenter, right? You ever see a wimpy carpenter? I never have. Maybe you could be the guy. Again, thinking on the physical level. Can't blame him. 38 years, right? Um, so he has, unlike Nicodemus, unlike the Samaritan woman who have a little bit of spiritual insight, none for this guy. Um, he, the answer is the question, do you want to be healed is yes, but it's impossible, right? Have you noticed in your life when you have that impossible situation, 
God loves those. Because if God heals you or comes through and answers your prayer, there's no question. It wasn't a coincidence. It would have happened anyway. It was totally God because it was an impossible situation. Verse, uh, one last thing, verse seven. The man does what most, most of us do. He limits what God can do. I need somebody to put me in. Doesn't even consider maybe God would heal me, right? Uh, J.B. Phillips wrote a book, I think it was the 60s, maybe early 70s, um, little book called Your God is Too Small. Anybody have heard, that, heard of that book? It's all about how we limit God and what we think he can do, and we don't even pray for things that, well, that would be impossible, and we're dealing with the creator of the universe. Verse 8, Jesus speaks. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Again, no fanfare, no magic potions, no waving of the hands, no speaking in tongues or anything. Just says, get up. Jesus' words have power. Again, that's going to come back later in this chapter a lot. But notice that he wasn't asked to heal the guy. And that he asked the guy to do something that was impossible, right? Get up. What? You're telling a paralyzed guy to get up? Pretty ridiculous, unless we're dealing with the God of the universe. Get up, verse 8. Pick up your mat and walk. A mat, it says bed in some translations. You're picking, picturing a bed with a headboard, two mattresses, and forget all that. It's a mat, a roll-up mat kind of thing. Okay, got the picture? Not real heavy. This guy's very poor. He doesn't have a nice mat anyway. But the pick up the mat is very important. We'll see in a second. You probably already know where I'm going with that. Um, he challenged the man to believe him for the impossible. Is God doing that with anybody here? where you know God, what his word says, and you're going, it just doesn't seem possible. Unlike a lot of other healings, especially in the gospel of John, John's key word in the whole gospel is the word believe. Whenever anybody believes, John always says, the faith of so-and-so made the difference. You read this whole story 20 times, you'll never see that here. Go, your faith has made you well. Remember that in the synoptic gospels? Doesn't happen here. Um, so uh, it's very, a very unique healing. We'll get to why in a second. Let's talk about healing for a second. Um, you heard me pray. Most of the prayer requests were for physical healing, right? Some were for salvation or other things. Um, so is healing guaranteed in the atonement of Jesus Christ for Christians? Translation, do all Christians get healed? Answer, yes. What? You know me, I'm not, she's pointing up. Eventually, finally, you're headed for an awesome, awesome destiny. Do you realize that? Your future, I don't care how bad your life is right now, your future is absolutely glorious. And in heaven, there will be no sickness, no pain, no dying, no disabilities of any kind. So in that sense, do all Christians get healed? Now you're going, oh, whew, I thought he was going to be a faith healer now, and we're going to take some donations. No, that's not where I'm going. Listen, 
Okay. Part of what makes people wonder, and that's why I asked it the way I did, is that in the Bible, you see Jesus meet deaf people, blind people, dead people, possessed people, paralyzed people, and he just heals, heals, heals. There's places in the gospel of, I think it's Mark, where he says there's all these people coming to him, and he healed, ready, them all. And you're at home with in bed with a fever, or you can't move your leg, or can't see, and you're going, why not me, Lord? Does God, when we pray, always heal us? No, not in this lifetime, right? Sometimes he does. If I didn't believe it, I would have skipped all those prayers. Well, that's all hopeless. They can't be healed. I don't believe that. However, God is sovereign. And there are cases in the Bible where holy men of God were sick. And they prayed for healing. And God said, no, I like you just the way you are. Paul has a thorn in the flesh flesh, some physical ailment. I know there's people saying it's his eyes. He had malaria. He had this problem. He had that. We don't know what it was. Some physical ailment. In 2 Corinthians 12, he asks the Lord three times, please heal me. I'm sure he's reasoning with God. I can be more of use to you. If I'm healed, I can do more. I can visit, plant more churches. Come on, come through. And God says to him, basically Joe's translation, no. My strength, God talking to Paul, is perfected in weakness. I like it when you're weak and dependent on me, Paul, because Paul might be tempted to get a big head. He goes up to the heavens. Remember all that? Heals people. He's got a tremendous ministry. Writes all kinds of books of the New Testament, right? Um, Timothy, holy man of God, younger, pastor. Paul tells him in one of his letters, Timothy, remember, take a little wine for your, wait for it, frequent stomach ailments. Anybody here have frequent stomach ailments? We have people in our family that do. Why doesn't Paul say, just name it and claim it. Name your healing, Timothy, and you can have it. Because that's not the way it works. It's not me that can name it and claim it. It's God that can do that. I trust God that his will be done. Central phrase in the Lord's prayer, right? Thy will be done, thy kingdom come. Can God heal? Yes. Might he heal you or me? Yes. Um, in the Bible, it's, it talks about elders anointing the sick, book of James, I believe, with oil and the prayer offered in faith. The man, the person or one or woman or child may be healed and they may not. If your faith depends on the healing, if he heals me, then I'll believe, then that's sign faith, which is always inferior. We've seen that already in this book. Um, there are those that can occasionally pray, you know, lay people, not elders, and lay hands on people. Anything wrong with that? No, it's biblical. And people might get healed, and they might not. I'm not saying that from a lack of faith. I'm saying it because I just trust God. He knows when to heal somebody. This guy, 38 years. It's a long time to wait, isn't it? Um, there are people that occasionally have the gift of healing. I have to tell you the truth. I am extremely skeptical about that. I always want to grab those people and go, let's go to Children's Hospital. 
Let's go and empty the place out one room at a time, man. We can do a floor in half an hour. How fast can you talk? I don't know. Uh, but I'm, I'm extremely skeptical. It's not always God's will in this life. But in the next life, if you're a believer, I can guarantee you, you will have no physical ailments. You'll never get sick. You'll never get injured. You'll never die. It's Garden of Eden restored with one difference. No snake, no devil, no way there can be a fall to mess it up. So the man, um, Jesus says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. Now, verse nine is surprising. Because if I'm the man, I've been paralyzed 38 years, and you say, get up and walk, it wouldn't say at once if it was me. I would think, who is this nutcase? Does he not know my situation? At once, verse 9, the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. What an incredible thing. I think he danced. But here it comes, the controversy. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. What's that? Sabbath. Old Testament, it's one of the Ten Commandments, right? The Sabbath day. This goes all the way back to Genesis, the creation. Remember? God creates the world in six days. By the way, it's a model for us. Why do you say that, Joe? Because God could have created the world in six seconds and had time left over to have a sandwich, right? He didn't need six days, but he recreated the world in six days, and God rested on the seventh day, right? You've all heard that? Was he exhausted from all that creating? Like, whew, I need a nap. God doesn't sleep or get tired, okay? We're going to see that in a second. He rested as a model for you and me, because some of us are workaholics, and we would work eight days a week to quote the Beatles, right? Susan, we would work eight days a week if we could. God knows for our mental and physical health, we need to rest. It's not just rest from work. It is rest that is involved with worship and, and appreciating and loving God and the things of God. Family, all of that is involved. Um, so the day this occurs is the Sabbath. God in his word has said to the Jews, don't work that day. Okay, what most scholars think he meant was, are you a plumber? Don't do any plumbing on the Sabbath. Okay, are you a doctor? Don't do any surgeries or don't see any patients. Are you mow lawn? Are you a gardener? Don't garden on. Are you a fisherman? Don't fish on the Sabbath. It's tempting because you can make more money. It's one more day to work don't work. What he did not mean that the Jewish leaders made this mean, they added a million, and I'm not kidding, man-made rules to the point of ridiculousness, okay? To the point of a man with a wooden leg couldn't move on the Sabbath because that's work for him because he's the leg isn't really part of him. It's a wooden leg. Um, you could not walk anywhere with a pin pinned to your robe because you're carrying something. There were all kinds of man-made rules, but it wasn't just then. Um, it was now, you know, more recently. Let me read you a quick story. It's very short. Um, 1992, 
In Israel, in an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood, there was a fire in an apartment building. And uh, the building burned to the ground while the people there were asking a rabbi if a telephone call to the fire department would be considered work since it was the Sabbath. And a phone call, old school, not cell phone, breaks an electrical current. I don't know if you know that, which could be considered work. The rabbi took half an hour to put his opinion together and decided, yes, it would be work. And the building burned to the ground. Have you ever heard anything so ridiculous in your life? In another gospel, Jesus says that he is Lord of the Sabbath. Remember that? Um, okay. Uh, let's see. Back to the man, 38 years. Okay. I'm going to throw this out there. I don't think it's true, but I'm going to throw it out there for you because it was in a few commentaries. Some people see an allegory here. The Jews, if you subtract time for a few things, I won't go into the details, wandered in the wilderness Okay, um, and the 38 years, according to these people, symbolizes the time of Israel's wanderings. Okay, I don't know if I buy it. Five porches, remember that was mentioned, five colonnades, five first five books of Moses, of the law. This man represents Israel. Um, the water represents cleansing or baptism. I don't know. Here's the one I like. I think this one's true. Sin paralyzes, maybe not visibly, but it greatly restricts you doing what God intends for you to do. Sin, we already said, um, creates distance between, separates people horizontally and people from God vertically. Sin is the barrier that prevents God from showing up and hanging out with us, right? One day, sin will be dealt with completely in heaven, and he will, dwells with his people. Remember all that? Um, okay, so it's the Sabbath. And so the question is, is it a sin to heal on the Sabbath? And is it a question to roll up your mat and carry the mat on the Sabbath? Biblically speaking, the answer is no. Does the man make a living carrying his mat? No. In other words, he's not a gardener that's going to go garden, right? He's just going to pick up his mat. Jesus tells him to do so, and he does. At once the man was cured, verse 9, he picked up his mat, and he walked. The day on which it took place was the Sabbath, verse 10. And so here they come, the Jewish religious leaders, almost always in the New Testament. They are hypocrites, legalists that... Um, strain at the least little commandment they can nail you on, and they miss the whole point spiritually. What is the point? A miracle just occurred, right? A guy that was paralyzed 38 years, you can't say, well, it was just a recent thing. It would have cleared up anyway. 38 years, come on. Verse 10, so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, but praise God that you're able to walk. Oh, no, it doesn't say that, does it? It's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. The whole miracle went right over their heads. It's astounding. Not, praise God, how, how did this happen? Did you get into the water first? All they're concerned about is their man-made 
Sabbath laws. The man is not working. He's not breaking the law. Verse 11, remember the passing of the buck? But he replied, uh, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. Translation, he told me to do it. It's his fault. Kind of turning on Jesus, right? Instead of protecting him as if Jesus needed protection. The, the man who healed me, the fellow who, uh, yeah, uh, said, pick up your mat and walk. By the way, he didn't have to do that. But the picking up of the mat indicates full healing. Keep in mind, somebody paralyzed 38 years. If you know anything about, we have Dave's here who's a paramedic. Um, and some of you also may have medical knowledge. Somebody paralyzed 38 years. If there was going to be a healing, there would today there would have to be months, if not years, of physical therapy, learning to walk with a walker and those little bars you can put your weight on, and then eventually a cane and maybe a brace on the leg and instant healing, right? No rehab time. Get up and walk. Carry your pallet and walk. We don't know whether his legs and his arms are paralyzed or just his legs, but it's a miracle. What do the Jews want to do? Condemn the guy for carrying a mat on the Sabbath. What's the penalty in Judaism, man-made rule, for carrying your mat on the Sabbath? Death, stoning. Whew. Do you see why he cleansed the temple? See how far off from the truth the Jews had gotten? So he passes the back buck and said, the guy that made me well, the guy that healed me said, do it. Verse 12, what I'm expecting is what they say. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? That's not what I would have said. I would have said, who's the guy that healed you, right? They don't even care. They're not rejoicing about that. Who is the guy? We'll go after him. Verse 13, the man who was healed had no idea who it was. Um, let's see. For Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. I get the feeling Jesus said, pick up your mat and walk. And the guy got up and walked and he was already, Jesus was already gone. Faith healers today would have been there going, bring the spotlights over here. Let's take a donation, right? Yes, I did it. Glory to me, right? Jesus slips away into the crowd. Now, listen, let's be realistic here. You've been to a doctor, right? What do they always say? Come back on the 31st and we'll check you out again. And right, it's always another appointment and an appointment to make the appointment. And Jesus could have avoided all this controversy by just saying, there's some Pharisees here. It's the Sabbath. Tomorrow is Sunday. I'll be back. I'll cure you then. Right? Jesus purposely heals this guy on the Sabbath. The whole point of this story is not the healing. It's the Sabbath and how it points to who Jesus is. That's what I'm going to try to sell to you here. By the way, it's time for our two-minute break. So let's do that and stretch our aging bodies. I'm going to turn my screen off, but I'll be right back. Don't go away. There we go. Recording in progress. Smile. All right, we're back from our two-minute break. Okay, so there's going to be a controversy because it's a Sabbath. Um, let's see, he could have waited. Yeah, we already talked about that. So they want to know, verse 12, who is the guy who told you 
to do this, right? Uh, the guy is no hero. He blames it on Jesus, right? Uh, we already talked about that. Um, so to, to the religious leaders, who is Jesus? The guy that broke the Sabbath. Who is he to the crippled guy? The guy, that, the dude that healed me. That's it, right? I got what I wanted. Or did he? Was he healed? We'll come back to that. Um, you already probably know where I'm going. Um, notice also Jesus slips away. Meaning what? There was a lot of crippled, injured, sick, lame, blind people there. Could have healed them all. Could have healed half of them. Chose to just heal this one dude and slip away. God's plans, God's knowledge, not ours. Um, so uh, we already talked about that. Let's keep rolling, shall we? Are you still awake on Zoom and here? Say amen. amen. Okay, good. Um, so who is the man who told you to pick up your pallet and walk? Verse 13, the man was healed, had no idea who it was. Verse 13, Jesus had slipped away into the crowd. It was there. Verse 14, later, what I'm expecting is the man found Jesus. Wasn't looking for him. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, now here comes the shocker. See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Wow, that came out of left field, right? The poor man, 38 years. Now we learn that in some way, sin was connected with the man's condition. Are you saying that the reason he was paralyzed was because of some sin? Yes, I am. Is that always the case? No. How do you know that? Flip over John chapter 9 with me for a second. John chapter 9. John chapter 9, are you still there? Verse 1, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. Got the picture? His disciples, verse 2, asked him, Rabbi, which means teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? This sounds a lot like Hinduism to me, right? Where somebody is getting punished here. That's why he's blind. In Hinduism, it's the dude himself. In a previous life, he was so bad, he's being punished. In fact, in Hinduism, um, Vic will tell you, it's, a, it's not allowed for you to help him because you're messing up karma. He's blind for, he's paralyzed for a reason, blind for a reason, poor for a reason. Leave him alone. It's karma. It's coming back to him. Leave him alone. Previous life. So the, the disciples asked Jesus about the man born blind, chapter 9, verse 2. Who sinned? Why is he blind? Was it him? Which as a baby born, he'd have to sin in the womb, right? Because we don't believe in past lives, right? Or was it his parents? Is that why he's blind? Jesus, verse three, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. And he goes on, go back to chapter five. The point is, usually it's not because of sin, if you see somebody that's very sick or whatever they have. Sometimes it is to get their attention. Who knows? 
I'll tell you this, we don't have that prerogative. I don't have x-ray vision to be able to see, you know why he's sick? You know why she's sick? We don't know. Don't assume they sinned, they're sinners, they're evil. That's why they're getting punished, right? The judgment of God mostly comes at the end of the world, right? All sin is judged. We're going to talk about that later as well, if the teacher would just keep moving on here. Um, let's see. Um, so it's an odd thing that he says, Jesus says, um, he finds him at the temple and he says, see, you are made whole again, King James, you are well again. Again, that's kind of a duh. The man says, yeah, I know. Some have said, well, he is in the temple. Then again, Judaism, the state of Judaism now, is he there just going through the motions or is he truly thankful to God? Based on his MO, I would say no. And I'll tell you why. Because I'd be thankful to God, but I would have sought out where is the dude with the robe that healed me, right? Wouldn't you? Just to know who are you? What did you do? You said, get up, and I got up. He doesn't see it that way. He says to him, see your well again. Stop sinning. This doesn't sound like he sinned once really badly 38 years ago, and God went, all right, that's it, paralyzed. It sounds like it was an ongoing, listen, lifestyle of continual sin. There are many ways this manifests itself in our world. People that get drunk every single day, use drugs, they steal every day. I beat up children every day, whatever it may be. Ongoing sin, not a, oops, I sinned. I'm so sorry, Lord, forgive me. I repent. I'm going to turn away from that sin and trust you to help me to not sin. Ongoing sin. He says, stop sinning. Now, human nature being what it is, I'll bet someone in this room is thinking, well, wait a minute, he's a paralyzed dude. How much sin can he do? Sin always starts here, right? That's where it starts. Remember Jesus in the book of Matthew? He says, you have heard it said. He's quoting the Old Testament and he has the audacity because he's God in human flesh to say, you've heard it said, you shall not commit murder, right? And I'm pretty sure it's in the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm sure people are listening to that saying, oh, murder. I'm good on that. Are you good on that one? Yeah. I've never murdered anybody. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit murder. But I say to you that every single one of you who hates his brother or says raka to his brother. By the way, raka literally means, I'm not kidding, airhead. You fool, okay, is just as guilty. You say, boy, that seems harsh because murder doesn't just start with a bullet to the head. It starts here with hatred or jealousy or whatever. Can the man sin in his mind? Absolutely. What was the man's sin? We don't know. Jesus knows. Jesus knows how long he'd been sick and why, right? Jesus said to the man, remember, double meanings, do you want to be healed? The man heard, do you want your legs to move again? Jesus meant, do you want to be healed completely, body, soul, spirit? Because if you want me to be your doctor, I got special x-rays, says Jesus, that can see not only why you're sick, but the cure for it right? I want to heal you unto eternal life. I want to give you salvation. The man just thinks in terms of physical healing. Stop sinning or something worse may happen. 
paralysis for 42 years. That's not what he means, though it would be worse, right? He means judgment. Because listen, if you've ever needed a healing, you're like those people. I've been there around the pool and healing, listen, is everything, right? But every healing, the greatest healing in the world is temporary. I don't mean to demean God, but if there's a healing, praise God, but it's temporary because you're going to die something else, right? The death rate is still one per person, as they say, but the healing he wants to give him is eternal. The comparison of the two is a trillion to one, right? Big difference. So stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now you're just holding your breath as you look down at verse 15, hoping, and the man got on his knees and worshiped. Wrong. And the man repented of his sin and confessed it to the Lord and turned from it. It's not what it says. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well, turned him in. He sided with the Jewish religious legalist idiot, sorry, leaders, right? That's why virtually every scholar you're going to read on this passage says the guy got healed by Jesus and was not saved. Pretty odd, right? What are they again? Signs. They point to something. Who can heal? Why didn't the Pharisees say to this guy, get up and walk? Because they couldn't do it. Only God could do it. The power of God. And yet the guy has no faith whatsoever just turns on him and reports him to, to uh, the authorities. Doesn't say he repented. And maybe we'll find out when we get to heaven, something worse did happen. And the guy is in hell forever at that when, when the judgment comes. Pretty shocking that God would, Christ would heal this guy. You say, boy, the guy didn't deserve it. Neither do you, neither do I, right? Salvation. But why heal this particular guy to show this, that sign faith ain't that strong a faith? And you've heard this, haven't you? If I could just see a miracle, I'd believe. No, you wouldn't. You need one more and then one more. Miracles are like illegal drugs. Huge thrill at first, and then you need more and more. And in the end, it's disappointing. Very similar. Um, the man has no, he, he starts out spiritually dead and ends up spiritually dead. He does not come to faith, but what you see here is the general grace of God. We Christians think God loves us. True. God saves us, uh, unconditionally true and gives us grace. What's grace? God's riches at Christ's expense. G R A C E. Another way to put it undeserved favor. Better way to put it, good stuff that God gives you that you don't deserve and can't earn. Sometimes God does that even for people that don't appreciate it. He, he, the rain falls on the just and on the unjust, right? There's blessings all over the place. And a lot of people just ignore God. Um, let's see, I'm still looking at notes here. Pretty surprising that the guy is not 
saved. Jesus attempted to heal him completely. And the guy said, the physical healing is all I want. Get lost, basically. Let's not talk about my private life. Pretty amazing. Jesus is saying, don't miss what your healing was a sign of. That the sickness that began, by the way, in the Garden of Eden. Before Adam and Eve sinned, there was no sickness, no disease, no paralysis, no death, nothing bad. Um, yeah, no repentance. He sides with the religious leaders. He doesn't even say, now that you found me, I got to know, who are you? He's not curious. He doesn't care. Um, okay, so the story seems like it's over, but it's really only getting started because we still have this Sabbath thing with the religious leaders. Um, let's see, I'm still reading notes here. Yeah, we talked about that. Okay, verse 16. So he tells the religious leaders it was Jesus who made him well. Verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. So that in the Greek is continually, meaning now they're hounding him, following him around. He's walking away and they're still going, you're a Sabbath breaker, you're a blasphemer, you're this, you're that. Verse 17, in his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day and I too am working. Now, Jesus's father is Joseph, humanly speaking, and he's been dead for some time now virtually everybody agrees he dies young. Mary's around still. Joseph's long gone. Father is capitalized in my Bible, meaning he means God, the father. So the, the crime he's accused of is you were working on the Sabbath, right? Was he? Does Jesus make his living healing cripples at the pool? Is that his job? No, he wasn't going to say that'll be 1995 or in some charge, right, to your credit card. But this is odd. He says, my father's always at work to this very day, and I too am working. Now, this is a weird thing. The Jews, the rabbis who um, postulate and think and theorize about all kinds of things, like philosophers do sometimes, in Jesus' day, there were writings that talked about the debate that the, fair, that the religious leaders had, the rabbis, and it was this. In a big sense, does God keep the law? Does God obey the Ten Commandments? And they decided, well, yeah, no, he's God. Yeah, okay. But they was, there was discussions about it. Then they got into commandment. By commandment. Does he ever commit adultery? Well, he's not married. So then they came to the Sabbath. And this was the one they really debated. Does God keep the Sabbath? Well, he rested on the seventh day. But wait a minute. They understood that God not only created the universe, but that he held the universe in his hands and all the machinery of every being in every planet is all God's work ongoing. So he has to be working on the Sabbath, right? Does God answer prayer on the Sabbath? Yeah, of course. So they decided God keeps nine out of the 10 commandments. 
but he doesn't have to keep the Sabbath because if he let the universe go for one day, Pluto would slam into Neptune, which would hit Jupiter and it would be all be over. Right. Um, no, I'm not an astronomer, but anyway. Um, so Jesus says, he's implying what I just explained to you. You know how you Jewish religious leaders know that God works on the Sabbath? That's my father you're talking about. He works on the Sabbath. My father's always at work to this very day, the Sabbath. And I too am working. Translation, the same exemption you experts give God for not having to keep the Sabbath is mine because by inference, I am who? God. Whew. Heavy duty, right? That's what his point is. For this reason, if you think I'm wrong, read verse 18. They, all, they tried all the more to kill him. Why? Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, in Judaism, that's a huge deal. It's called blasphemy, right? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. The Jews are thinking in terms of him saying he's God too, as being, um, in the one sense, two gods now we have. Christians believe in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three personages. The three personages, the three whos are the one what God. One what? One God revealed in three persons. You all know this analogy. It's not great, but it's the best one there is. The pot of water boiling on the stove. How many know this analogy? Anybody know this analogy? Pot of water boiling on the stove. Chemically, what's in the pot? H2O, right? Water. Now it's boiling and steam is rising. Water is a liquid. Steam is a gas. Oh, we have a liquid and a gas. Two things. But what's chemically in the pot? Steam, H2O, water, H2O. You still with me? Two different things. One thing chemically. At a precise time when this is happening, you throw in a big block of ice the size of a, you know, whatever, grapefruit. And for a little while before it melts, you got a solid, a liquid, and a gas. Three things. But they're all H2O right? Ice, water, steam. Is that a great analogy? No, because the water doesn't love the steam and the steam doesn't send the ice, right? Do we need to go into all that? Um, let's see. Son, by calling God his father, he's saying that he's the son, all right? Now, for us, it's different than in that culture. In our culture, someone is the son, they're somehow less, okay? But remember, if two human beings have a son, one thing we know about him is he's a human being. Human beings have a son, it's a human being. Can't be a chicken, can't be a goat. There's no way it's a lizard, it's a human being. If two goats have a son, it's a goat. If God has a son, he has to be God. But here he is, some guy with a beard, a carpenter, because he's fully God and fully man. We'll get to why that has to be that way in this passage if we keep rolling, and we're doing pretty good on time. Okay, the Jews get it, verse 18, calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. For the Jews, God was, listen, the father of Israel as a nation corporately. No Jew would ever say, he's my father. Christians say it all the time, right? How do you pray? Our father, 
That's astounding that we pray that way, but it's right. Jesus taught it. Jesus gave this answer, verse 19. I tell you the truth. Those of you that have been with us, you know that whenever Jesus says that, verily, verily, I say unto you, I tell you the truth. Truly, truly, I tell you. It's a way of saying, listen up. This is really important. I tell you the truth. The son, talking about himself, can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. Don't miss what he just said. The last part. It's astounding. Whatever the father does, regardless, you name it, whatever God can do, I can do. Whatever God does do, I do. That you, you may hear people say, you know, Jesus really never said he was God. And there's a Greek word for that. It's called baloney. He says it all over the place, not only here, but in other gospels, in the books of Paul and James and Peter, everywhere. The son can do nothing by himself. Now, he's submissive to the father because it's the incarnation, right? And he voluntarily, Philippians 2, uh, relinquishes the exercise of his powers of deity for his own good. He heals other people. He will not tear himself off the cross and go kill the Romans who nailed him to that cross. He never feeds himself. You know, remember in the wilderness, turn these stones into bread. He doesn't do it. It would just be for him. But what's the point he's making in verse 19? He's, to paraphrase, he's saying this. Um, if a lion wants to be a chicken, he can't do it, right? It's not in his nature. Or if an eagle wants to be a fish, he can pretend maybe he identifies as a fish this particular day. Anyway, don't get me started. Okay, but... The son of God can't be anything but what he is. And just as God can't be what he's not, neither can I. Look at, what he, look at the scripture again. Um, the son can do nothing by himself. He only does what he sees the father doing because we're the same nature, same essence. But wait, Joe, you said the son submits to the father. Doesn't that imply that the son is somehow inferior or less or a lieutenant to the to god the father's general no here's why the president of the united states has more power than you but he's human as you are so in nature he is exactly the same but in role he has great power over you the cop that pulls you over on highway 41 is a human being and so are you but you can't say get lost, dude, because he has authority you don't have. Sign here, right? In a husband and wife situation, the Bible teaches that they are equal in nature, in essence, a man and a woman, they're both human, but in role, the man is supposed to take the leadership position. The woman is supposed to be submissive. Jesus voluntarily is submissive to his father, Partly because there's got to be someone leading, but partly because he's obeying the Father as an example to us. He is the God-man. So the son does nothing by himself. He only does what he sees his father doing. In other words, Jesus is never going to go rogue. God wanted this to happen, and Jesus went, sorry, Dad, I'm going my own way. I'm rebelling like the prodigal son ain't going to happen. They are united in unity. Uh, Jesus says later in this gospel, he that has seen me has seen the father. 
I and the Father are one. The divine name of God, I am, Jesus claims for himself in John 8, 58. Oh, there's so much here. Okay. He only can do what he sees the Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son does also. Don't miss that. I know I said it earlier. Whatever the Father does, the Son does. Now listen, this is all about the deity of Jesus. Remember the overarching um, point of the Gospel of John is who is Jesus, remember? Fully God. Uh, like I said, he's Mark 2.28, he's the Lord even of the Sabbath. Everything God does, Jesus does. On, on one occasion, Jesus, do you remember, forgives sin. Now the Jews knew only God can forgive sin. Jesus, John 1, verses 1 through 5, created the whole world. No, that's God. Jesus created the whole world. Colossians 1, right around verse 15, too. Um, let's see. Only God can give life and raise the dead. Jesus does all those things. So um, we'll talk more about that as we go, but we're getting late on time. So let's keep... Uh, rolling. I'm, I'm looking at all my notes. There's so many. Yeah, we talked about that. God doesn't need rest or sleep is Psalm 121, by the way. Um, the God who, he who keeps Israel shall never, neither slumber nor sleep. Uh, we already talked about that. Um, yeah. And we talked about that verse. Mm, let's see 20 for the father loves the son. And shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. Okay, why is that in there? The father loves the son. couple reasons. Number one, it's not coercion. God the father doesn't have a gun to God the son's head saying, you better obey. It's a loving relationship, but the son loves the father. He wants to obey. Okay, they're in absolute unity. There is nothing that the son and the father disagree on. Nothing. The one time there was almost something is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember? Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but your will be done. Absolute unity. That was the human flesh coming in, but quickly you saw the deity there, right? You, not my will, but your will be done. Um, it's not master-slave. It's a love relationship. Uh, in Islam, Allah is the God, okay? He is no God. The God of the Bible is not Allah. It's not the same God with a different name. Allah is one God. Before he created the world forever, Allah was alone. God, the Christian God, the Jewish God, is three in one, right? The ice, the water, and the steam. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why do you bring this up? Because of the word love there. Because before the world was made, the true God of the Bible, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, there was love there. You, the, there's no love when you're alone. I mean, you can contemplate your navel or love yourself and all that, but the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, etc. cetera. Um, God is love. He couldn't be love and be solo. Um, let's see. There's so much here. Uh, yeah, we're running out of time. Um, verse 21. Oh, even greater things than these. Absolutely. He's, we're going to find out in a second. Jesus is going to judge the whole world. 
Jesus is going to rise from the dead. Verse 21, for just as the father, uh, let's see, for just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, which the Jews would agree that the father does do that. Even so, the son gives life to whom or to whomever he is pleased to give it. God is the one that gives life. When a baby's born, Jesus just did that. You say he did. He gave life to some muscles and tendons and nerves and bones that had been dead for 38 years, right? Like I said, there was no physical therapy, no walk with a walker, and eventually you'll walk on your own. Gave life. Eventually, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead in this gospel. He raises two other people from the dead. He raises himself from the dead eventually. He has the power to give life, but he just offered life, spiritual life, to the man, right? And the man said, no, thanks. I'm well now. Who needs you? I don't even care who you are. The father raises the dead and gives him life. He's sort of outlining for them everything that God can do so that when he does it, they'll, hello, get your calculator out and figure it out. I'm God, right? But they never seem to get it. Um, the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Verse 22, moreover, the father judges no one. This would be a shock for the Jews who believe that the father uh, judged everyone, but instead has entrusted all judgment to who? The son. Every single human being that has ever lived will one day be judged by Jesus Christ, your Lord. Aren't you glad? Wouldn't you like to walk in the courtroom and go, oh, I, I know the judge. I talk to him every day. He's my Lord. Right? Uh, all judgment. So we're going through all the things that God does. Jesus says, all those things, I give life to whoever I want. I am the one that will judge. All judgment is entrusted to me, the son, verse 23, so that all may honor the son. Everybody is supposed to, but they don't honor the son, Jesus, just as they honor the father, God, the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Translation. You ever hear this one? I don't really believe in Jesus. You know, I'm not really a Christian. I have my own relationship with God. You read him this verse and go, no, you don't. No offense, but no, you don't. If you don't honor the son, Jesus, you're not honoring the father. Because they're one. And because the Father sent the Son, He's the one that will judge the world. Are there religions that honor the Father, or say they do, that don't honor the Son? Yes. Unfortunately, the way it is currently, Muslims and Jews, right, say they honor God the Father, so to speak, but not the Son. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Unitarians, the way, um, there's all kinds of cults that always demote Jesus and elevate man. That's one of the common things. Another thing cults do, yes, the Bible, but we've got our book here too. We got three other books in Mormonism. We have um, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society in uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, where we have our own writings. It's a red flag, isn't it? 
Scripture is Scripture. What does it say in the last book of the Bible in one of the last verses? Don't add to this book. Don't subtract from it or look out. Remember? All right. Now, that, are you all still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, that was the best one. That's pretty good. Um, shall we do one more verse and blow out of here? I think so. Um, so honoring the son is honoring the father. Let me see what notes. Um, oh, the father judges no one. Uh, one commentator wrote, "One the father judges no one on his own without reference to the son. Because in one sense, everyone is judged according to sin, right? But then if that's, if that's it, you're in trouble because you're all sinners and so am I. Probably more in trouble than you are, I am. But the real focal point of all judgment, although sin is important, the real focal point, the most important question for human beings in the history of humanity is this one question. What, this is the person that lived their life and they're dead now. What did you do with the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, I thought he was okay. He was a good teacher. Jesus is just all right with me, right? You ever heard that song? Just all right? Anyway, what did you do with Jesus Christ? If you honor the son, you're honoring the father. If you, Jesus Christ was your Lord and your savior, and you understand he died on the cross for your sins, then the sin question is done for you. Under sin, in Sam's file there, it says, paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And Sam can't believe it and comes to look at the 96 pages he thought would be there of sins, and they're all gone. Same with mine, same with yours. On the other hand, the person, like the guy that got healed, or the person that says, I don't need Jesus, they bring out the books. Next week, we'll talk about judgment. We didn't get there this week. Um, because the teacher is kind of a babbler. But anyway, I hope you'll come back and we'll continue. If you have questions, you can always email me. Otherwise, we're going to close with prayer and uh, we'll get out of here. Thanks for being here on Zoom and those of you that are here as well. Um, let me say this before we close. This is for those of you in person that are here. The most important thing you can do while you're here after we close with prayer is say hello to someone you don't know. Very important. Why? Because churches, Bible studies get clicky. And I only say hello to the three people I know and the two guys over there. And I never, that's not good. In fact, I suggest that you sit somewhere different every time you're here. That way you'll have to meet new people, right? Shall we close with prayer? Now that I made you all feel guilty, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we could be in your word. And what an um, awesome and surprising end to the story. And just like that paralyzed man, God, you sought us out. You healed us truly, physically somewhat, but spiritually. And in an eternal spiritual way, you have made us whole. And we're so grateful. We all have a long way to go, God. But unlike him, help us to always believe, draw near to you and investigate you more and more. We want to know who you are and pursue you as you pursued us. Make us mindful of the fact that our conduct does matter uh, even more now that we're believers. Help us to see our sin the way you do. And unlike the paralyzed man, repent where you show us our sin uh, and help us to read your word and believe it. We have your word. Help us to be like that dad that heard Jesus's word and took him at it and started walking. 
Let your word challenge us, God. Help us not to create our own God who always agrees with us, but help us to listen to the biblical God who can disagree with us and challenge us, God. We invite that. Thank you that we have as a present possession eternal life. We'll see that more next week. Use each of us for your glory. Thank you for this time and for Zoom and for your Bible study. We give you praise and glory in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thanks everybody on Zoom and everybody here. I'm going to turn my screen off. See you next week.